When you're in the market for a new car, you want a vehicle that conquers your daily commute, easily handles the elements, and looks great too. You need the reliability of a Toyota and the confidence that your investment will last. Why? Because after all the carpools, shopping trips, and weekends out, you want a car that still has plenty of miles left in it and holds its value for a great trade-in deal. That's where Toyota leads the pack as the number one resale value brand for 2024, according to Kelly Blue Book's KBB.com. So check out the all-new, fully redesigned 2025 Camry or test drive a stylish and affordable Corolla sedan or hatchback. And remember, when you choose Toyota, you're not just buying a car for today, you're investing in trade-in value for tomorrow. Visit buyatoyota.com, the official website for deals, for more. Vehicles projected resale value is specific to the 2024 model year. For more information, visit kellybluebookskbb.com. Kelly Blue Book is a registered trademark of Kelly Blue Book Company, Incorporated. Toyota, let's go places. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hello and welcome to Happier, a podcast about strategies and solutions for making our lives happier, healthier, more productive, and more creative. This week is our discussion for the Happier Podcast Book Club. So we will be talking to author Anne Patchett about her terrific novel, The Dutch House. I'm Gretchen Rubin, a writer who studies happiness, good habits, and human nature. I am in my home office in New York City, and with me is my sister, the sage, Elizabeth Kraft. That's me, Elizabeth Kraft, a TV writer and producer living in L.A., and Gretchen, I'm in my home office in Encino, (laughs) and I cannot wait to talk about The Dutch House. I loved it so much. Yes, but before we dive into The Dutch House with Ann Patchett, I want to put a spotlight on a Black author this week, Trevor Noah. Now, Many people know Trevor Noah as a comedian and as host of the TV show, The Daily Show on Comedy Central. And he also wrote a fascinating, brilliant page-turning memoir called Born a Crime. Yeah, I'm listening to it, Gretchen, and it is so good. Yeah, it's so good. Now, it was a number one New York Times bestseller and was named one of the best books of the year by the New York Times, NPR, Booklist, etc. So this this is not a book that has not been heard of. Yeah. But it's one of those books that really, you're like, eh, is it really that good? And yeah, it really, it's thought-provoking. It's hilarious. It's poignant. It's deeply moving about what it was like to grow up in uh, South Africa under apartheid. It's about his relationship with his mother, about his his friendships. It's about so many things. I just loved it. Yeah, I loved it too. And I love listening to it because he has a South African accent. So it just adds to the experience. Well, and one of the things that's very striking is he he speaks seven languages and he talks often about how the ability to speak someone's language allows you to reach people in a way that 
you can identify with them and understand them uh, just because you can talk to them, which is fascinating. Yes. There's one line I just want to read because this has just struck me so, so hard. So he's talking about all the things that his mother did to show him a bigger world, which was not easy under apartheid to like introduce him to all these different experiences and environments beyond their township of Soweto in South Africa. And he writes, we tell people to follow their dreams, but you can only dream of what you can imagine. And depending on where you come from, your imagination can be quite limited. And so he writes about all the things his mother did to give him a big imagination and a big dream. So it's just a terrific book. So a spotlight on Trevor Noah and Born a Crime. And now for the book club. Last year, we launched our Happier Podcast book club, and today we will be talking about the brilliant novel The Dutch House by Anne Patchett. Anne Patchett is an internationally best-selling author. I love all her novels, especially Bel Canto, Commonwealth, and State of Wonder. I also love her essays. I do love essays, and that's called This is the Story of a Happy Marriage. Perhaps most of all, I love her memoir, Truth and Beauty, which is about her friendship with the writer Lucy Greeley. And I also love children's books, and Ann Patchett has also written children's <laughs> picture books. She has one coming out in September called Escape Goat, which is illustrated by Robin Price Glasser, who, if you know Fancy Nancy, as one does, <laughs> she is the illustrator for Fancy Nancy. Ann Patchett has also won the Orange Prize, the Penn Faulkner Award, and a Guggenheim Fellowship. If all that isn't enough to keep her busy, she also opened the beloved indie bookstore Parnassus Books in Nashville, Tennessee. Her latest novel, The Dutch House, has generated a huge amount of buzz. It has been a big bestseller and was named a best book of 2019 by NPR, Washington Post, Slate, Library Journal, and others, was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize, and was a New York Times book review notable book. Here's the description. The Dutch House is a richly moving story that explores the indelible bond between two siblings, the house of their childhood, and a past that will not let them go. It digs deeply into questions of inheritance, love, and forgiveness, of how we want to see ourselves, and of who we really are. The story is told by Cyril's son, Danny, as he and his older sister, the brilliantly acerbic and self-assured Maeve, are exiled from the Dutch House where they grew up by their stepmother. The two wealthy siblings are thrown back into the poverty their parents had escaped from and find that all they have to count on is one another. It is this unshakable bond between them that both saves their lives and thwarts their futures. Set over the course of five decades, The Dutch House is a dark fairy tale about two smart people who could not overcome their past. Despite every outward sign of success, Danny and Maeve are only truly comfortable when they're together. Throughout their lives, they return to the well-worn story of what they've lost with humor and rage. But when at last they're forced to confront the people who left them behind, the relationship between an indulged brother and his ever-protective sister is finally tested. So welcome, Anne. Hi, Anne. Hi. Thank you so much for doing this, especially in these strange times. But it was such a pleasure to read this book. Oh, thank you. And we loved hearing from everybody about it. Everybody loved this book. And one place to jump out in is The Dutch House is the title. It's such a huge theme. So Sophia asked, was this inspired by a real house? 
And Kim asked, I once read an article about Ann Patchett's own house and the care and love they put into making it a home. As I listened to the Dutch house, I wondered if that process showed up in the Dutch house in any way. So what is the history of the Dutch house? Those are two interesting questions. It's funny because I would definitely say no. There is no Dutch house. Mm. There are pieces of many houses that I have been in over the course of my life that I put into the Dutch house. What was important to me was that the Dutch house would be the house that the reader remembered. Mm -hmm. That I feel like everybody has a house either that they lived in or their friend lived in or they drove past or they went to a party there and they thought, that is the most yes. magnificent mm-hmm. house. Like yes. that is the house of my heart. I interviewed Reese Witherspoon for Vanity Fair and I went into her house, which was the, in Nashville. It was the most astonishing <sighs> house. And it really got me emotionally. And she said, this is the house that when I was in high school, the other girls lived in this house. And like... This was the house that I dreamed of when I was a teenage girl, which since Reese and I both went to girls' schools in Nashville, I got it completely. <laughs> Even before she said it, I was like, this is the house I wanted when I was 16. So I was trying to go for that kind of feeling. As far as my own house is concerned, no, I mean, my house is not the Dutch house. I am somebody who likes to clean and I am very big into house maintenance. I take very, very good care of the place that I live. So there is probably a house tenderness that uh-huh. I brought to the story. And what about, Anne, the sort of control issues with the house? Like, I'm really interested in how Cyril bought the house without consulting his wife. And then late in the book, you find out Danny bought the house in New York without consulting Celeste, and she always hated the house. I mean, that doesn't feel, you know, coincidental. (laughs) Well, yeah. I mean, I think that there are all sorts of things that Danny does that his father did, um, that Maeve does, that her mother did, and that we all do that. We repeat patterns when we think we are completely free of them, when we think that we are the one who got away and we're different And then you find out, no, look, I did the same stupid thing that my parents did. It seems like one of the darkest moments, Alyssa and I were talking about this, one of the darkest moments in the book is when Andrea takes the room with the window seat away from Maeve Hmm. and the father is complicit and they walk up to the third floor. And that is when you think all all loyalties have been broken now. And again, it was in the house. It was the window seat that came up over and over again. And even later when they were all grown up, Instantly, they returned to the idea of the window seat. It was so powerful. Yeah, that was the thing I always wanted when I was a little girl. (sighs) And I had gone into a house once that had that, the window seat with the heavy drape over it, and thought, Mm -hmm. that's got to be the ultimate little Mm -hmm. girl fantasy. And as awful as it was that Maeve loses her bedroom, hopefully there's also the tiniest bit of logic in there, too, because she has gone off to college, Mm -hmm. right? She's Mm -hmm. gone. And Andrea's saying she's not ever going to live here again. This room should go to my daughter. And that seems both horrible, and yet at the same time, there is a little part of me that thinks, "Eh, should the very best room in the house be held in place for someone who's gone? Right. Yes. So switching gears to the theme of forgiveness and punishment, um, a listener asked, 
Forgiveness is a powerful theme of the book, and it was interesting to see how people would forgive the same person for the same damage done on very different timetables, and that that forgiveness done separately can cause a rift in what seemed an unbreakable bond. Was that her intention at the outset of the book, or did that evolve as she wrote? It's such a quietly powerful and really wonderful book. I sat with it for a long time. And you know, to me, that's a reference to Danny and Maeve and the forgiveness of, of their mother and how that was such a rift. I certainly didn't sit down and think, I'm going to write a book about forgiveness. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's something that I'm interested in, and mostly how forgiveness is good for the person who forgives. Mm-hmm. You know, to not yes. carry the burden of your own anger over the course of your life. And, and also to forgive someone, as I think... Danny doesn't exactly forgive his mother by the end of the book, but he's come to peace with her. He's mm-hmm. decided to put it down and to not be angry. That may not be the exact same thing as forgiveness, but to realize that the burden of anger is so damaging to the person that holds it. And I think for me, that's the, that's the theme. Well, that came through so much with Fluffy, where mm-hmm. his forgiveness of Fluffy was so beautiful and his kind of embrace of her. But was I can't remember if it was Sandy or Jocelyn who was like, you really should see Fluffy. You're really going to feel differently when you see her. And he did. So he was really pushed into the position of, of confronting her. And then kind of all his feelings changed. And that was that was very transcendent, I thought, the way that was reclaimed. The past was reclaimed in that way. And I think that, that that's just the way it works. I mean, it's it's why if I'm angry at someone, if I can see them, mm-hmm. it dissipates my anger, right? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. There was there was a family rift for for several years in my family, and as soon as the person came back, mm-hmm. I I mean I, I still had some things to work out, but when you can look and say, oh look, there you are, you're a person, and we've had all sorts of beautiful moments together. The extent to which you can fetishize your anger, whether it's Danny and Maeve's anger against Andrea or Danny's anger against Elna, once those women are in front of him again, he can't hang on to it because I think really no one can. And then there's also this the punishment element. Maeve seems really hell-bent on punishing Andrea as much as she possibly can, draining the money from the education fund to the point where she sort of makes Danny be a doctor <laughs> when he doesn't want to be a doctor. Like, what, what were you going for with the punishment aspect of it? Well, and I should also say her Punishment is completely impotent, and she knows that. Yes, has, she doesn't care. Yeah, yeah. Like, she has to do something. She's got to funnel her rage into something, and that is the only thing she has access to. She knows that she's not hurting Andrea. She knows she's not preventing Andrea's daughters from going to college, anything like that. But she's got to have a vehicle for her anger. So it's a, it's a stupid kind of punishment. And she understands that. She is completely wise to it, but she also can't stop herself from doing it. And then I think that's repeated in a way of Danny's punishment of Elna. You know, mm. he's he's not impacting anything, but he can't stop himself from doing it. 
And then the way that Danny and and Maeve um, deal with Elna, that really is the biggest rift they have. Right, right. And that's just this sort of dividing line. And we sort of, when we were talking about it, thought it's, it's, and I think he says this in the book, that Danny had Maeve to sort of be the mother figure. Maeve had no one. Exactly. And so she really needed that. And Danny really didn't so much. Well, not only that, but Maeve knew her mother, right? Maeve had all sorts of wonderful memories, the happiest moments of her life spent with her mother. Danny has no memories, none of their mother. And and he had not only Maeve, he had Fluffy and Sandy and Jocelyn. I mean, he was loaded with mothers who completely worshipped him and doted on him. And so why does he need this other person who he feels nothing but anger towards. Now, there's a be- particularly beautiful passage in it, which brings up this issue of the past, which, of course, is a huge theme. So it'd be wonderful if you could read from page 45, where Maeve and Danny talk about trying to understand the past and their past. And we should we should say that throughout the book, um, yes. for anyone who hasn't read it, once they're sort of forced out of the house after their father dies, they can keep going back and sitting in their car in front of the house throughout the years and watching the house. So that's what they're doing in this scene. And I am, as I always do in these moments, reading from the wonderful large print edition. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So do you think it's possible to ever see the past as it actually was? I asked my sister. We were sitting in her car parked in front of the Dutch house in the broad daylight of early summer The linden trees had kept us from seeing anything except the linden trees. I had thought the trees were enormous when I was young, but they'd kept right on growing. Maybe one day they'd grow into the wall of Andrea's dreams. The car windows were rolled down, and we each kept an arm out, Maeve's left, my right, while we smoked. I had finished my first year of medical school at Columbia. It would be the summer we would quit smoking, more or less— But on this particular day, we were still only thinking about it. I see the past as it actually was, Maeve said. She was looking at the trees. But we overlay the present onto the past. We look back through the lens of what we know now, so we're not seeing it as the people we were. We're seeing it as the people we are. And that means the past has been radically altered. Well, and I mean, what do you, what's your answer to that? Do you think people can see the past as it actually was? No. I really, <laughs> okay, that's clear. Yeah. Shall we yeah. just move on? Yeah. yeah. I, um, I don't, and it has been proven to me over and over again because mm. I think that I remember the past yeah. absolutely perfectly, but I have a sister, I have four step siblings, I, my, my closest friend has been my closest friend since I was seven. We remember the past with equal clarity and differently. Uh, we were both in the room when it happened, and right. we remember it differently. And so there is no way for me to rally up the, the level of solipsism it would require to think that I was the one who was always right and everyone else was always wrong. Right. And I have to say, this is the first book that I have written 
in first person since 1994. My first two books were in first person. This book would have been entirely different had it been in third person mm. because what we're operating on basically is Danny's perception yes. and yes. Danny's perception of Maeve's perception. But there is no room for Andrea's perception, the fathers, the little girls, all of these other people. Well, that's what Alyssa said. Alyssa said, I would love to read the same novel from Maeve's perception. Yes. For, you yeah. know, you said that. Like, yes, how f- I, I want to read this again, but all hear it from <laughs> Maeve's point of view. Yeah. And what's, what's really interesting about that and what's interesting about first person is that the, the first question you have to ask yourself is, is this the kind of person who would tell a story? Mm. Or who would tell a story about themselves? Maeve, absolutely not. Yeah, mm. Danny, yes. yes. But to the point, but to your point about this is what we know that we are only seeing what Danny knows. And so many people said, just to be clear, Maeve is having an affair with Mr. Otterson, right? Yes, yes. That seemed to be like yes. Danny's clueless. He doesn't know this. <laughs> right. Danny and Jocelyn are sisters. He's missing a yeah. lot. And there's like this giant, and everybody's like. I'm not making that up, right? So yeah. we just, because so many people ask, it's like, clearly this is supposed to be a sign to us of Danny's kind of obliviousness, right? Well, um, Danny's obliviousness and also, uh, I think that in a lot of ways, I, I have some deep buried anger towards men uh, that I'm working <laughs> through in this book because it's so much about Danny's privilege and yeah. how Danny is so smart and charming and everyone loves him, mm. but he does not understand the extent to which he is served. Yeah. And that all the women around him have little brooms and they're running in front of him, sweeping all the pebbles off the path so he never has to deal with anything. You know, when he says to Maeve, oh, I'm so sorry that you're the one having to go and deal with all my wedding plans because I'm so yeah. busy painting this apartment. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, he he doesn't get it. And yeah. it's something that I see again and again in life. Men who are wonderful, women who are shrews. And it's because mm-hmm. the shrews are doing all the work the men cast on them. Yeah. Which is why the men are so happy. But it's, yeah. it's interesting, like, there's that moment of recognition where he said, Celeste missed her window. She was good at chemistry, so she thought she'd marry a doctor. Right. A few years later, she would have pursued chemistry herself or something right. like that. And she's like, she so badly wanted to be the wife of a doctor. That right. was so important to her. And that's part of the trap of Danny, is that he is so kind that he appears to understand that he can say something like that about Celeste, but he still really doesn't get it. Yes. Mm-hmm. He's, yes. Yes. Fascinating. <laughs> Coming up, more of our discussion about the Dutch house. But first, this break. The weather's getting warmer, so it's time to say goodbye to jackets and sweaters and hello to shorts and tees. Gretchen, I am always on the hunt for the perfect t-shirt, and I found it at Quince. So well-priced, such good quality. I am in love with the Slub crew neck tee. I have it in white. I'm getting it in black, possibly multiples. I love it so much. The best part, all Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands. By partnering directly with top factories, Quince cuts out the costs of the middleman and passes the savings on to us. 
Get warm weather ready with Quince. Go to quince.com slash Gretchen for free shipping on your order and 365-day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash Gretchen to get free shipping and 365-day returns. Quince.com slash Gretchen. There are some stories about our father's life that I truly never get tired of hearing, from hilarious to heartfelt, tear-jerking to plot-twisting. His retelling of the events always brings me joy. Just in time for Father's Day, I found the perfect gift that captures all his stories for our family forever. It's called StoryWorth. StoryWorth helps you preserve precious memories and stories from your father or father figure's life for years to come. And, Gretch, you get a book of all these stories. And I love just keeping a book on the coffee table and anyone from any generation can see a story from dad, like what was his favorite toy or what was his first job. Each week, StoryWorth emails your loved one a thought-provoking question that you get to help pick. Give all the fathers in your life a unique, heartfelt gift you'll all cherish for years. StoryWorth. Right now, save $10 on your first purchase when you go to storyworth.com happier. That's storyworth.com happier to save $10 on your first purchase. So here's another thing. This is just, I am fascinated by characters, people who are drawn to voluntary poverty. Um, mm. And this is a huge kind of spiritual tradition. This is Dorothy Day. This is Simone Weil. There's many, many, you know, St. Francis. People who are drawn to voluntary poverty and it's kind of saint-like people. And this idea that it's very difficult to be a person in the life of a saint. That everybody else loves the saint, but you're, it's hard on the persons who are mm. actually like personally connected to them. Yes. And I was, and I've always been interested in that. So it was so interesting to see this person treated as, she's a major character, but she's really in a way not a major character. Just have you, are you interested in that? And how did she come into the, the role that she plays? It's sort of like the investigation of the fallout of a person like that, who clearly everyone else in their lives is like, this woman is special. She's different. She has a higher calling. They get it. And he absolutely does not. Well, it's very interesting, I, I should say, having this conversation where we're not saying, oh, this is a spoiler. Or, oh, we can't talk about yeah, this. Yeah, no, it's spoiler like, away. We're yeah. just talking yeah. about it. Yeah. So um, I, am, I am really obsessed with this. Uh, I went to a Catholic girls' school for 12 years. Um, I still have an extremely primary relationship with the nun who taught me to read, Sister Nina, in first mm -hmm. through third grade. She's 88. She is my life. She is my nun. And uh, this idea of, of poverty, of giving up what you have, if I was the person that I want to be, I would give up what I had. This is something I wrestle with throughout my life. And well, have when, you read Orwell's Reflections on Gandhi? Uh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, right? <laughs> yeah, well. So I wrote this book twice, The Dutch mm -hmm. House. And the first time I wrote it, and I wrote it, I finished it. It was a book about Elna. And, <gasps> uh, and it was a book about Danny having two mothers. So the first half of the book, Elna leaves. The father tells the children that she dies. Uh, she goes to India to work with Mother Teresa. In the middle of the book, they find out she's alive. Right about the time Danny and Celeste get married, are getting married, Danny goes to India to find her. And the second half of the book takes place in India. And Maeve, wow. Maeve dies in the middle of the book when Danny is in India. Oh. 
It was so horrible. I can't begin to tell you what a flop and a failure. Half of this book takes place in Calcutta. And Danny forgives his mother and loves her and accepts her as a saint and brings her back to the States. And it was a bomb. But what I realized when I finished the book and when I read it and when I realized how horrible it was, was that (laughs) women can't be forgiven for leaving their children for spiritual reasons. Mm. Men can go to war. Uh, We can have Ulysses. uh, We can have Siddhartha. We have a whole noble tradition of men leaving their families for exploration of all kinds. And I wanted to write a book in which a woman had that. Well, Pema Chodron, I've always been sort of curious to follow that up in her. Yes. She's a, an ordained Buddhist nun who, be, who, who went into spiritual life when her children were 13 and 15. Yes. And one, but, one accepted it and one, she said, had, had issues with it. But I, uh, she didn't just walk out on them. Didn't she? I, I don't. I think that she pursued her spiritual life. I mean, I don't. I don't like, Her know. husband left her. Mm-hmm. Um, she the had the catalyst. children and then she begins her spiritual life. But I don't believe she just ditched her kids. Interesting. Okay. Um, Interesting. But but when I was I was upset with myself when I finished the book that I hadn't been able to pull this off. And what I ended up doing finally was I, I sat down in the middle of my office, speaking of Pema, on my meditation cushion, and I closed my eyes and I went up and down the street in my neighborhood and I thought about every woman that I knew on my street who had young children. And I thought, okay, there I see Whitney, and I see little Wynne and little Claire. What if Whitney left Wynne and Claire and went to India to serve the poor? And I thought, I'd kill her. Mm-hmm. I mean, like, mm-hmm. again and again, what I mm-hmm. felt was Danny this anger. Danny raised that question. Mm-hmm. When right I really Jocelyn saw the kids, when I thought of real... Children with happy lives mm-hmm. on my own suburban street and their mother walking away to go to another country. I thought this is selfish and self-aggrandizing and heartless. Uh, and that I hadn't put that question to myself <gasps> in the difficult way before I started the book. Ah, so you kind of skipped that tension. I did. Let her off the hook. Wow. I did because I was operating from an intellectual yeah. point of view and not an emotional, not thinking what would this actually be like. But this is why I mentioned the, the, the Orwell essay, because he says, like, to be a saint is not to be human. And that at some point, what does it mean to be human? It means to love some people more than others. It yes. mean, and he goes through a whole thing of, like, what is it to be a saint? It's fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. And, and then what is it like when you decide you're going to throw out most of your book. I mean, do you yeah. go into a deep <laughs> depression? Do you yeah. do you take a few weeks off and just say, I'm not going to think about this? I, what is that like? You know, it was really interesting. I had been away at a, at a friend's house, an empty house, finishing the book. I came home. Uh, my friend Patrick Ryan, who is a, a writer who I love, and he comes and we work together every year for a couple of weeks. So I read the book and I go downstairs and I said to Patrick, the book's, it's horrible. I just got to the end. It's horrible. I have to throw it out. 
And he said, well, you know, let me read it. Let me read it. And I said, no, like the only victory in all of this is that no one will ever read this. And I deleted all the files. <gasps> you did? Wow. Whoa. Uh, like, like that day. Like that, I didn't. Wow. wow. I did not sit around and think about it. <gasps> wow. And so many bold. people said to me, but what if you were wrong? I'm like, oh, my God, there is no way in the world I could be wrong about whether or not a book of mine was bad. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, I own a bookstore. I read yeah. bad books. I know what a bad <laughs> book looks like. And how long had you worked on it? I don't know, a year and a half, maybe. Mm. But I well, I mean, when I finally got it, I wrote it in a few months. <gasps> because mm. it was so clear in your mind. Yes. When I finally figured out what I was doing, I could do it fast. Meanwhile, I'm sitting here thinking, you're you writing a bad book. I'm sure many of us would find it incredibly entertaining, even if it wasn't, <laughs> you know, to your standards. I'm sure it was a great story. Uh, it it certainly didn't feel that way. Because again, the emotional weight mm -hmm. was off. That the fact that Danny just accepted his mother on meeting her, that mm -hmm. Maeve dies, and frankly, the second Maeve dies, the book is over, right? Mm -hmm. Yes. Like, mm -hmm. You don't care about yes. anything. Mm -hmm. We just barely yes. crawl through those last 10 pages after she dies yes. in this version. Uh, she is all of the life and the energy in the book. Well, speaking of Maeve, she's a type 1 diabetic. I'm a type 1 diabetic. So hey. that was very interesting just to me personally. And Melissa asked us, she said, I was very interested in Ann Padgett's depiction of Maeve as a type 1 diabetic. Did you have a firsthand experience with that? Well, my aforementioned uh, best friend since I was seven years old, Tavia Cathcart, is a type 1 diabetic. Mm. And so, yeah, it's been a part of my life. She, she's, uh, she's a fantastic diabetic in that she has just taken so much responsibility from the get-go. She doesn't just rely on what her endocrinologist tells her. She goes to the conferences herself and wow. you know, constantly is doing research and, and finding ways to, to live her best life and her healthiest life. So it's, it's something that was near and dear to my heart because she is so much a part of my life. And she worked with me all the way through the book mm. and um, made corrections and said, you know, you need to you need to have another scene here. Like, I didn't know that the the scene where she has a crisis oh. when they leave the house and they're in the car and she's sweating and Danny doesn't have his driver's license and and he's helping her then. Tavia said, uh, you need to put that in because uh, something that was so emotionally upsetting could have tripped her up. One thing that's interesting is that if you make a mistake in a book, you get so many letters about <laughs> mm -hmm. it forever and yes. ever. And all the mistakes had been culled because of Goodreads, right? Because galleys now go out to all these mm -hmm. people before the book is printed – I got so many corrections at a moment where I could change it before the final draft. <gasps> Fascinating. Which was, I, I mean, like, yeah. at one point I say something about Danny's three-point shot. Somebody wrote to me and said, oh, the three-point shot didn't come in until 1978. <gasps> oh, oh, my gosh. Like, 
that sort of thing. I got things about the draft oh, wrong. That would be so funny to just do like a little like thanks readers for the yeah. bloopers or something. Oh. And just do a collect like all the words that you find out that you're mispronouncing yeah. when you do the audiobook. Like you <laughs> so know, amazing. So funny. But that's a great idea. I love that idea. But I got a letter like two weeks ago from a woman who was a retired pediatric endocrinologist in New York. And she said, how are they testing? How is she testing her blood? Those blood test strips were invented in 1980. Mm. And oh. I wrote her back and just said, wow, I, I just bow my head because I cannot fix that. Even mm. even in another printing, I can't fix it. And you are the only person who's called me out on it, which is amazing. Wow. Well, I really appreciated reading about just her experience. So thank you for that. Can I say one more thing about that? Yeah. Which connects. In my book, State of Wonder, whatever was before State of Wonder, Run. So I was on book tour for Run, and someone came up to me in a signing line and said, I want to read a book in which there is a character who is deaf, and it is not a book about someone being deaf. Mm. There is just a deaf person in the book, and that is not what the book is about. And I said, wow, that's a great idea. And so I, in my next book, State of Wonder, had this character, Easter, who is deaf, and nobody cares, and mm. nobody is talking about him being deaf. And I thought, that's so important. So that has really followed me forward. Mm. It's like, okay, she's a diabetic, and we're dealing with this throughout the book, but this is not a book about being a diabetic. Right. Yeah, and her death was not necessarily because she was diabetic. She also smoked. And her father died early. Right, in yeah. Right. Coming up, more with Anne. But first, this break. LinkedIn isn't just a job board. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. On LinkedIn, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Hire professionals like a professional on LinkedIn. I now work with a team, and I am here to say that finding the right candidate and hiring the right candidate is one of the very biggest and most important challenges to anyone who has a small business. LinkedIn knows that small businesses are wearing so many hats and might not have the time or resources to hire. LinkedIn is constantly finding ways to make the process easier. Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash Gretchen. That's linkedin.com slash Gretchen to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. Is your child struggling with a specific subject or need help with homework? Are they asking questions that you're not sure you can fully answer? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed. This program will improve your kids' grades. Studies done in almost every state in the country. The kids who had IXL are consistently doing better. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. And it doesn't have to eat up all your time. One subscription gets you everything for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. So don't miss out. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. 
Get IXL now, and listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com audio. Visit IXL.com audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. I was very interested because in the flap copy, and I know how carefully flap copy is considered, the book is described as a fairy tale. And I thought, okay, how is it a fairy tale? So there's the wicked stepmother who forces the children out of the castle, And then is there a curse? Because the ending of it was, to me, so striking. Two weeks later, Maeve died. And we're told over and over again that the father said, every time your mother leaves, Maeve gets sick. If your mother comes back and and leaves again, Maeve will die. And that happens. Mm-hmm. The mother comes back and she leaves mm-hmm. by going to take care of Andrea, which to Maeve is like the, the betrayal. Once again, you're choosing to take care of somebody helpless or who needs you more than me, even though I'm telling you I need you. Don't go there. I mm-hmm. can't have you coming and going from the house. And then she does die. Mm-hmm. Comment. I, I was just, when I read that, I was like, whoa, <laughs> two weeks later, Maeve died. I, I did not see it coming. I, mm-hmm. You're right. Everything after that just completely shifts. Danny kind of goes lifeless. Yeah. Well, how do we how do we understand that? You know, I don't think that it was a curse. I mean, I don't think that the father set something out, but I Or it was like a destiny. Maybe not a curse, but like a prophecy or a deep insight. Or it's what Tavia was telling me, uh which was that severe trauma really can impact diabetes. Mm. And so is that a curse or is that a medical truth? Or is it somewhere in between? As far as the fairy tale thing is concerned, when I wrote my first book, Patron Saint of Liars, when I was 27 years old, Alice McDermott very kindly reviewed it in the New York Times, and she called it a fairy tale. And that word has followed me throughout my life. And everything I write is called a fairy tale. Ah, Um, Although for me, it's Catholicism. Mm. But but Catholicism is a fairy tale. Mm. Sorry. Uh, Butler's Lives of the Saints. If you read Aesop's fables, Hans Christian Andersen, Butler's Lives of the Saints, you're reading the same book. And those are the things that I read as a child. I mean, I, I like big plot arcs. I mm. I like stories with morals and not magic realism, but there is a certain kind of magic that comes from growing up Catholic. Mm. Mm? <laughs> That's really interesting. <laughs> so there's a sort of fadedness that is coming into play or is coming to yeah. pass. Yeah. Yes. So it, it was it was satisfying in that there was a coherence to it or like a prophecy fulfilled aspect to it, even though it was terrible within in its consequences. But it was kind of in a literary way. Well, but, you know, as Chekhov says, yes, if there's a gun, yeah. if yeah. there's yeah. a gun in the first act, it's going to go off in the third act. Yeah. And, and that's the gun. Mm-hmm. But I didn't see it coming. And that's the artistry of it, which yeah. is it was exactly predictable. And we had been told over and over that's what to expect. And when it happened, I was like... What? Yeah. yeah. But but guess what? That's what death is. Yes. Every single time. Yeah. Mm. Uh, we know it's coming. We know it's coming. And it uh, always catches us off. Yeah. 
Now, we always do like to ask a guest for a try this at home. This is just kind of a concrete thing that you would recommend that people try at home to make themselves happier, healthier, more productive, or more creative. So do you have any suggestions for listeners? I have so many. And, <laughs> Excellent. Uh, You've come to the right place. Yeah. But I'm going to give you what I think is the most important one and is the reason that I am a writer, mm. which is the thing I have that other people do not have. I have the ability to forgive myself all. Mm-hmm. And I think that that is the most important thing. The story that you imagine in your mind, if you are a seventh grader who has to write a world history paper, or if you are a 56-year-old novelist who is working on your whatever number book, what is in your head and what is on paper bear no resemblance to one another. Never, ever will they meet. And what is in my head is so beautiful, so moving, so important, and I cannot get what is in my head on paper. No one can. And when you read what you've written and you compare it to what you imagined, Mm. it comes up so short. It breaks my heart every time. (laughs) And yet, and I think that that's what people don't write. They crumple Mm. it up and they say, oh, I'm no good. This is Mm. no good. But it's never any good. So you have to say, this is the best I could do today. And I forgive myself. What's interesting, because we talked to Isaac Mizrahi, and he, and he talked oh. about going to an exhibit and how he held, had kind of almost a feeling of nausea because it filled him with a desire to do something so beautiful, and he knew that he never could. That's right. Um, and yet you have to try. Yeah. Every, every time I go to work, I am confronted by my lack of intelligence and my lack of talent. And if I never went to work, I would not have to be confronted by those things. Oh, yes. Yes. But I do, I go, I look, I break my heart, and then I have something. And, and do you I have a discipline going. or a practice or a habit or a mantra that helps you to do that? Because I think a lot of people would be like, yes, I would like to do that. How do you how do you do that? Well, the mantra is I forgive myself. Mm. And also You have to think of your brain as having two parts, the part that makes art and the part that is critical of art. Mm -hmm. Both are important. But when you are making art, you must turn off the part of your brain that is critical of art. You cannot edit and write at the same time. You get into this thing which Mm -hmm. I call editing yourself off the page. Mm -hmm. So even before you type the sentence, you think, well, that's no good. (laughs) And then you don't (laughs) type. So you say, I have to write. I I may not pass judgment. I may not pass judgment today. And then tomorrow or two weeks or a year or whenever, then you go back and you look at it and you pass judgment. And And then you edit. But if you try to do those two things simultaneously, you will fail. Well, Anne, thank you so much. We enjoyed this immensely. It was such a pleasure to read the book and an additional pleasure to get to talk to you about it. It was so nice to talk to both of you. I've really looked forward to this and I appreciate you using your giant platform for literature and for books. That that means a lot to me and a lot to the country. Thank Thank you. Thank you, Anne. Thanks, Anne. 
Bye. We'd still love to hear your impressions and reflections on this terrific novel, The Dutch House. Let us know on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. Drop us an email at podcast at GretchenRubin.com. Or as always, you can go to the show notes. This is happiercast.com slash 283 for everything related to this episode. Remember, whenever it is and wherever you are, there's always a book waiting for you. And that's it for this episode of Happier. Remember to try this at home. Read Anne Patchett's novel, The Dutch House. Or if you've already read it, read another one of her terrific works, such as Bel Canto, Commonwealth, State of Wonder. Or if you like essays, This is the Story of a Happy Marriage. Or maybe my favorite, The Memoir Truth and Beauty. Let us know what you thought. Thanks to our wonderful guest, Anne Patchett. If you'd like to order her books or any books from her indie bookstore, Parnassus in Nashville, we'll post a link to the store and to all her books there. Thanks to our executive producer, Chuck Reed, and everyone at Cadence 13. Get in touch. Gretchen's on Twitter at Gretchen Rubin, and I'm at Elizabeth Craft. Our email address is podcast at GretchenRubin.com. And if you like this show, you know what to do. Please be sure to tell a friend and rate and review and subscribe to us wherever you listen to your podcast. The resources for this week. Do you want a t-shirt with your tendency on it? Yes, wear your tendency with pride. Visit GretchenRubin.com slash merch to order a t-shirt, sweatshirt, or tote bag with a polder, obliger, questioner, or rubble. And if you are working on your habits, which a lot of people are doing these days, you can download my checklist for habit change at GretchenRubin.com slash resources. This chart will help you use the 21 strategies for habit change as you work on a crucial key habits. And if you want to know more about those 21 habit strategies, uh, it's all uh, described in my book, Better Than Before. Until next week, I'm Elizabeth Kraft. And I'm Gretchen Rubin. Thanks for joining us. Onward and upward. So listen, I cannot believe that Ann Patchett threw out a whole novel. I know. I mean, I wouldn't even want to throw out a paragraph. I know. Doing all that work. <laughs> she deleted the files. It's Plus, I'm del- sure it was a great book. Oh, I'm sure it was great. Wow. That's high standards. From the Onward Project. <laughs>